The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. The word of God speaks to us like this. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God to us. Thank you. Hey guys, good morning. It's great to see everybody today. I'm really thankful that you're here. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've got a Bible, you can start finding Mark chapter 14. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for several months, and we're going to wrap it up on Easter Sunday. So today is really important. It's really powerful. It's really beautiful. And it's really dense. So I'm going to take a second and pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this moment... You are at work. And last night while we slept, you did not sleep. And we thank you that there's nothing hidden from your gaze. There's nothing beyond your power. There's nothing that can resist your ultimate glory that you've manifested in Jesus. And I just pray today as we open up this text that you would shape us and form us. I pray, Lord, that the ways in which the way we think and the way we operate is an unquestioned allegiance to the systems of this world, that today would be a moment where you help us to see clearly that the way of Jesus is different, and that the way of Jesus is better. And I pray today that you would help us to grow in devotion, and I pray that at the end of today, you would give us the gift of seeing our weakness. Because in our weakness, your strength is perfected. 
We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen, amen. Hey, so this text is one of my favorite parts of the gospel of Mark. And what I love about this text is that what John Mark is doing as he recounts these events is he's actually painting for us not just chronological events that lead to the gospel. So it's not just that Jesus, of course, has to be tried before he goes to the cross, which was the plan of God since the very beginning. But more than just chronology, what John Mark is showing us in this text is the actual essence of the gospel, the very heart of the gospel, the thing that makes the gospel so beautiful and at the very, very same time so offensive. All throughout this text, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find contrast. And the contrast in this text between the trial of Jesus and the denials of Peter is a contrast that leads us to the very heart of the kingdom of God. Because in this text, what John Mark is doing with the help of the Holy Spirit so powerfully is he's holding up in front of our faces the wisdom of the world and the strength of the world as opposed to the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of the world, but all of that is really hard to grasp, it's really hard to believe, and it's really hard to see. And so this text is a narrative version of that truth. It's recounting true things that really happened, but it's recounting those things in such a way that we're invited to feel the tension and the contrast between the kind of wisdom and the kind of strength that everybody around us says is beautiful and powerful and matters, and the kind of foolishness and the kind of weakness that is actually of eternal beauty and strength manifested in Jesus. So let me give you just a couple of things before we dive in to the flow of this text. This text is full of irony. It's full of irony. In this text, we have the true high priest, Jesus Christ, who's going to go into the ultimate holy of holies, who's going to make the one-time sacrifice for sin, the true high priest who lives to intercede for his people, being questioned by an apostate high priest, a high priest that has the title but doesn't have the substance a high priest that's using words that sound religious, but who is denying the very power and presence of God in Jesus. We have the irony of false witnesses testifying against the one who all creation is called to testify in favor of. Like, did you know that in this very moment, there are trees and there's mountains and there's rocks that in their own designed, created way are pointing to the glory of Jesus. They're pointing to what's coming in Jesus. And in this text, we have human beings who are image bearers of God, who are bearing false witness against Jesus. In this text, we have Jesus being asked to prophesy in mockery. He's blindfolded and he's struck in the face and he's being told, prophesy who hits you. And all the while they're mocking Jesus about prophesying. And in this very moment, all of the predictions of Jesus about his arrest and his trial and his death are being fulfilled. While Jesus is being mocked as a false prophet, his true prophecy about Peter's three denials is taking place simultaneously. In this text, we have the irony of the disciple who enjoyed special privilege and closeness with Jesus, Peter. 
It's been said that Peter was a first among equals with the disciples. He's mentioned first in most of the names of the disciples. He gets to go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's really tight with Christ. And in this text, we have that disciple who's enjoyed that kind of relational closeness following Jesus from a distance. We have the disciple who's made tremendous boasts about never leaving Jesus, denying Jesus. In this text, we have the irony that Jesus is being questioned by the most powerful ruling body of the Jews and the most powerful man in all of Israel, the high priest. And under that questioning and pressure, Jesus is resolute, he's steadfast, he's peaceful, and he's pure. And at the very same time, you have Peter. You have Peter being questioned by a servant girl, and he crumples under the pressure in that moment. In this text, we have Jesus being accused of blasphemy while sinful human beings spit in the face of the Son of God, committing true blasphemy. And in the midst of all these contrasts, what we see is that the very trial of Jesus itself is a mockery of justice. The Sanhedrin, which was the chief governing body of the Jews, had a set of rules for just trials. And they're breaking all of their own rules. It was said that they were not to do trials in the evening or on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival, and now they have a trial in the middle of the night to sneak by their unjust verdict. It was said that all trials were to be located in the temple in a very particular place, and this trial is a sham that's taking place in the house of the high priest. It was said that trials from the Sanhedrin had to give reasons for acquittal and potential innocence before any evidences of guilt were found. And we have these guys who don't care at all about the numerous testimonies of Jesus' power and truth and authority, but instead they're handpicking false witnesses against Jesus. They had rules governing what witnesses could and couldn't do. Witnesses were required by the law of the Sanhedrin to avoid hearsay and rumor. And now you have false witnesses being encouraged to throw out accusations that are based in hearsay and rumor. And according to the rules of the Sanhedrin, charges of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accused had actually cursed the name of God, a thing that Jesus never once in his life ever did. And so in the midst of these ironies and contradictions, what we find is that in these events, we have a profound difference between the wisdom and strength of the world and the foolishness and wisdom of God in his weakness. So let me take you through this text. I'm gonna show you just a couple of things. Let's start by looking at the wisdom and strength of the world. Human wisdom and strength is on display in both the trial of Jesus and in Peter's approach to saving his own neck. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with many blows. Hey, listen, like this is a picture of worldly wisdom and worldly power. The the Sanhedrin is the body of ruling officials that had the law and the prophets. They had the entire weight of God's self-disclosure in the Old Testament at their disposal. But what they didn't have was the Spirit of God to illuminate that word. They had the word and the form of the law, but they didn't have the substance of the law because the law itself, all of it, testifies to Jesus. The Sanhedrin had the institutional weight of Israel behind them. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the rhythms of the nation. They had the festivals, and they had the feasts. And in the midst of all of that institutional strength, here's what you find at the end of the day, at this point in the history of Israel, the institutional power is there, but the power of God, the life of God is absent. You see that the Sanhedrin had the power of position and authority. They had the high priest, they had the scribes, they had the leaders of Israel, they had the most revered names in the land on their side, But at the very same time, in the midst of all of that power and all of those titles, what we have is a group of people who are blind and foolish as they don't see Jesus. And what we see is that the Sanhedrin will do anything to maintain their power. In this text, they're going to manipulate, they're going to lie, they're going to resort to violence and even murder to accomplish their goals. They're going to do whatever it takes to keep their power and to operate according to the systems of this world, which are based on human intellect and human brute force. And yet they can't see the wisdom and strength of God. They can't see the truth. They can't see the beauty of Jesus. They can't enter the kingdom of God. And what's wild is in this moment, what you have is the collaboration between all of the religious strength and the national strength of Israel and all of the military strength of Rome all being combined together to snuff out Jesus in the foolishness of God and in the weakness of God and all of that power and all of that force and all of that intellect is unable to stop Jesus. In fact, at the end of the day, not only do they not resist the plan of God, but they actually advance the plan of God for him to demonstrate, for him to demonstrate true wisdom in foolishness and true strength in weakness. Now, the same thing is true of Peter's denial. We see human weak, human wisdom and human strength in Peter's denial. Let me read it to you quickly. Look at verse 66. And Peter was blowing the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and she began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Here's what we see. Peter has the power of pride. That's going to be Peter's fatal flaw all the way up into the resurrection of Jesus. Peter is going to boast in his strength. And on the night Jesus starts to tell his friends that he's going to be betrayed and arrested, Peter stands up with with bravado and with arrogance, and he declares loudly, even if everybody else deserts you, I never will. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, like this very night, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter still doesn't see it. He still believes that he's strong enough, that he's smart enough, that he's equipped enough to stand on his own feet. In addition, Peter has the, he has the power to fight. What we see, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus is arrested, Peter draws a sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Here's what's wild. That's a picture of human strength. He's willing to fight for Jesus. But here's what we find in this text. Jesus never asked him to fight for him. Jesus asked Peter and his disciples to suffer for him. And Peter has the willingness to fight, but he doesn't have the willingness to die. In addition, we see that in this text, Peter has the power of comfort. Like, just feel the irony of one of Jesus' closest disciples warming himself by a campfire surrounded by the very guards that are about to beat Jesus. He wants to stay warm, and he wants to stay safe, and he wants to stay comfortable. In addition, Peter has maybe the most powerful thing of all, the power of deception and self-deception. Like, I don't think Peter at this point is just tricking other people. I think Peter is tricking himself. Peter's denying knowing Jesus three times, and the climax of his denials is a curse that he brings down upon himself, in essence saying something to the effect of, if I know that man, may God damn me. Peter in this moment has lost the thread of reality. He has lied so many times in this moment that now he's even able to lie to himself at the very danger of his own soul. And in this moment, what we see is that all of Peter's strength and all of Peter's goodness and all of Peter's charisma and all of Peter's intellect falls unbelievably short of righteousness. Peter fails. The rooster crows. Peter remembers what Jesus said and hit breaks him. It breaks him. He goes to a place of profound darkness. From this moment on until the resurrection, Peter walks away from Jesus. He returns to his old life as a fisherman. He feels such profound toxic shame about what he's done that he has no vision or no hope that Jesus would ever still be his friend and ever use him for anything, and he simply walks away. So in this story, what John Mark is doing is he's showing, he's showing us the wisdom and the strength of the world, and he's showing us that the wisdom and strength of the world is insufficient, that it's actually in the weakness and foolishness of God that true beauty and power is found. That leads us to number two, the foolishness and weakness of God. Here's what's happening. I've got to give you a little background. 
This entire text is about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah about the suffering servant. Isaiah prophesied that there would be a suffering servant and Jesus steps into this moment and he fulfills all of those predictions. Let me read you just a few of these. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with wicked, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here's what we see in the incarnation of Jesus and in this moment as the incarnation of Jesus leads to the silence of Jesus and the crushing of Jesus, the foolishness and weakness of God is on display. It's on display in Jesus' silence. In the Gospel of John, when people come to arrest Jesus, Jesus simply speaks a word to his arresting officers and everybody falls on the ground like dead men simply from the power and authority of the Son of God speaking. And in this moment, as Jesus is silent, what you find is that he had more intellect than these people. He had more power than these people. He had more truth than these people. And simply by remaining silent, the very wisdom and glory of God, the capital W word doesn't speak. We find that Jesus displays the weakness and foolish of God when he does speak. The high priest says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus then, instead of defending or arguing or trying to get off the hook, he speaks to the high priest about what's coming for him to fulfill Daniel chapter seven after the cross, that he will be glorified, that he'll be resurrected, that he'll be seen at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus speaks, he speaks in a way that seals his doom. It's the weakness and foolishness of God. We see the weakness and foolishness of God in the sufferings and shame of Jesus. Like, I don't know if you've ever been spit on. I I have. It's profoundly shame-inducing. Or to be slapped in the face. I'd rather be punched in the face than slapped in the face. Jesus, the Son of God, is slapped and he's punched. And by the way, The entire time, Jesus has the authority, he has the power, he has the divine right to speak a word and call down 10,000 legions of angels and to end these people, but he stands there and he bears the shame, he bears the reproach. We see it in his death. They say, you've heard his blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus could have gotten off the cross at any point. He could have resisted this moment. He could have flexed his divine power, but he doesn't do so. He surrenders and he submits even to the indignity of death. And in the midst of all of that, what we find is that in hiddenness and in restraint, in hiddenness and in restraint, the Son of God works our salvation. 
in hiddenness and in restraint. Isaiah prophesies elsewhere that he didn't have any stately majesty or form that we would desire him. The very power of God, the glory of God, the very same God who's created all things out of nothing, and if you stood in his presence and saw him, it would unmake you. And the person of the Son takes on flesh and covers his glory. He hides his glory. He takes on weakness and fragility and breakability. He makes it possible for us to wound him and spit on him and curse him and mock him and pull out his beard. In the midst of all of these things, in hiddenness and restraint, what we see is like weakness that's truly weak. And we see foolishness. Why wouldn't God just open the heavens and show everybody who he is? God then hides himself. But here's what we find in this foolishness and weakness, the strength and wisdom of the world can't comprehend the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And I think this leads us to something really powerful and really hard. Okay, this contrast between the wisdom and strength of the world and the foolishness and weakness of God leads us to something really powerful that we all have to reckon with. What if I told you that there was something essential to being human, to being fully human, something essential to your salvation, something essential to having deep relationship with God and deep relationship with people, something that you need to be fully you, something that you need to know people, something that you need to be a person of worship, a person that loves God, a person that knows truth. Would you want that thing? Would you want it? Okay, would you want it if I told you that the thing that you need is shame? Now track with me. Because I'm not talking about toxic shame. Toxic shame is vile and destructive. Toxic shame leads us to hide ourselves from God and from each other. Toxic shame is the fuel for our addictions. It's what empowers our compulsions. Toxic shame leads us away from the light. It leads us into the darkness of the shadows. Toxic shame leads to pretending and hiding and playing games and posturing. But listen, don't throw all shame out just because there's such a thing as toxic shame. Healthy shame is a gift of God to people to remind us of our limitation, of our fragility, of our weakness, of our smallness, and of our need. Toxic shame is coming to the realization that you're naked and you need to be clothed. Shame, healthy shame, is the realization that you're empty and you need to be filled. Healthy shame is the realization that you're not gonna make it on your own, that you can't do it by yourself, that you're not enough, that you're not sufficient. Over by my neighborhood, there's a, there's a house and they've painted on the fence in big letters to celebrate, to encourage people and to fight against what I think they think is toxic shame, the big block letters, you are enough. And the problem with that is that you're not. You're not enough and I'm not enough. That doesn't mean that you're not beautiful. It doesn't mean that you're not valuable. It doesn't mean that you're not loved. It doesn't mean that the living God doesn't care about you so much that he bends down to take on flesh and be crushed for you. But in the midst of healthy, healthy, good, beautiful shame, our eyes are open to the fact that we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough, we're not wise enough. We need God. And listen, we need each other. 
We need to be covered. We need to be clothed and we need to be fed. And this leads to the final thing I want to talk about. Will you let the weakness and foolishness of God shame your strength? Will you let the weakness and foolishness of God shame your strength? At the end of his strength and in the depth of his failure, Peter found an invitation from Jesus. Peter's strength had failed him. His boasting had failed him. His intellect had failed him. His macho, manly willingness to draw a sword and cut off an ear had failed him. And in the shadows of abject failure, Peter is brought so low that he has no hope of Jesus wanting him. And Jesus does something amazing after the resurrection. Do you remember what it is? Peter denied Jesus three times over a campfire. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus comes and he builds a campfire. Peter's out in a boat fishing. He's walked away from Jesus. He's given up on the kingdom of God. And Jesus calls Peter to himself and over a campfire with many of the same smells and sights that would have reminded Peter of his greatest dark failure, Jesus restores Peter to love. And Peter in that moment realizes that he actually needs God, that he can't do it on his own. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the essence of what I think John Mark is getting at as he recounts these events. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And verse 27 says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Hey, what if the weakness and foolishness of the cross, among many other things, among its cosmic dimensions, that it's the beginnings of a new creation, among the reality that it's God's definitive defeat of sin, Satan, and death. He does so many things through the cross and resurrection, but what if one of the great mysteries and gifts of the weakness and foolishness of the trial of Jesus, his brutal torture, and his death, is that in that moment we're invited to have our strength shamed? to like actually admit, I can't do it on my own. I need God, I need his people, I need his grace, I need his power. Before Peter's failure and before his eyes were open to the reality of shame, Peter liked Jesus. I think Peter maybe even loved Jesus. Peter just didn't really think he needed Jesus. I just want to encourage you, I want to encourage you that the reality of having your strength shamed is not living your life depressed and hopeless and morose. Having your strength shamed is an invitation into boasting in your weakness that the strength of God could be made perfect. It's an invitation to living life rightly with sobriety, with attentiveness, to the spirit of God and your need for him to guide you, to help you, to convict you, to heal you, to shape you, to form you. 
It's an invitation to seeing yourself as a human being that can't be who you're supposed to be without people. Without people that love you and help you and speak the truth with you and walk with you. So, will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in your love, the wisdom of God and the strength of God is displayed as weakness and foolishness. That we didn't comprehend it, we didn't get it. That our wisdom and strength couldn't get to you, so you, in what seemed to us foolishness and and weakness, came to us. And I just pray all across this room that there would be a casting off of toxic shame that leads us to hide and to pretend and to posture, but there would be a healthy invitation from real shame. We're naked and we need to be clothed. We're hungry, we need to be fed. We're weak, we need your strength. We're prone to wander, we need your guidance. We're prone to isolation, we need your people. We're prone to vain imagination, we need your word. We're prone to self-sufficiency, we need sobriety and reality. So Jesus, we love you. Thank you for becoming weak and breakable. Thank you for being silent in a way that led to your death for us. Thank you for speaking in a way that led to your death for us. Thank you for your willingness during your time on this planet in your flesh to hide and to restrain your glory. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to wait for you, to follow you, and to seek you as we long for the day where your glory will be revealed fully. Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.